Hi guys, welcome to episode 10 on the Prismatic Academy podcast. I'm Chrissy Marie and this is a space where we explore conscious entrepreneurship, collective healing, and the vastness of possibility and human potential. Now, I'm a bit under the weather today, so please forgive me if I'm sounding not so sparkly, as I definitely don't want that to take away from this chat I had with the insightful author, keynote, and TEDx speaker, and amazing executive coach, Eric Kaufman. I met Eric back in 2007 when he was a coach for an international company, and I like to refer to him as the influencer of the influencers, and you'll soon see why. He coaches leaders to think strategically, decide effectively, and relate powerfully, therefore getting them home early without sorcery, magic, or selling their soul. His work is shaped by 16 years of leadership consulting, managing at Fortune 1000 firms, and he holds degrees in business and psychology, as well as has a quarter century of Zen practice under his belt. He has lived in Israel and South Africa, has taught as a master scuba diving instructor, and has also worked as a certified hypnotherapist. He really has done it all, folks. I'm so honored to have Eric as a guest, and I'm truly amazed by his incredible spiritual journey. I love his capacity to listen and extract essence from what's being said, and how he always contributes from this space of adding value. I also really admire how he has been able to capture the soul level experience of what it truly means to be a leader. I can't say enough good things about Eric and his work, but what I can say is that I definitely learned so much from him in just our one hour chat and that it really helped me in my own work as an intuitive and creative executive coach. In this interview, we talk about Eric's backstory and the events that influenced the work and life he enjoys today, which includes having once lived in a spiritual commune for over 11 years, as well as spending a year of silence where he built his own sustainable cabin for himself in the woods. We also talk about a person's gravity and how it can be used in a leadership capacity, the difference between ambition and aspiration, which was a new one for me and something I really enjoyed hearing about, as well as his approach when it comes to leading and guiding our top leaders into the best version of their self. We talk about fear and how to overcome limiting structures and touch briefly on his newly released book, The Four Virtues of a Leader. So with that, we'll get right to it. And here it is, episode 10 on life and leadership with Eric Kaufman. Sure. Do you need a warm-up? <laughs> Do I need a warm-up? Everybody needs a warm-up. All right. All right. So I know you like to go camping. Where's your favorite camp spot? Favorite camp spots of all places on the planet? Mm-hmm. The uh, Pecos River Valley up in um, outside of Santa Fe, New Mexico. Okay. What do you San- like about it? Sangu de Cristo Mountains, the Blood of Christ Mountains. Fan freaking fantastic. Yeah, what makes it special for you? Uh, there's it, it's a it's it's on it's in this there's the river that runs through it, and then mm-hmm. as you as you go sort of head up the mountain to, to closer to the river source, there's this place where the coniferous forest, you know, all mm-hmm. the, the the pine trees, mm-hmm. starts to blend into all the um, all the aspens. Because the higher you go, you know, they have less less pines, more aspens, mm-hmm. and uh, it's just kind of a magical forest area with this beautiful river, and hardly anyone goes there. Oh, really? Oh, yeah. They just don't know about it. They must know They're about like the it. The secret's out now. <laughs> yeah, the secret's out now. Uh, so, what do you do when you're there? Do you go hiking or fishing? Yeah, or yeah, just go backpacking. So we'll go like you know we'll hike up for two or three days. Mm-hmm. And then camp, you know, camp one night, camp second night, camp third night. Oh, in different places? Yeah, just keep oh, cool. yeah, yeah. Yeah. Oh, okay. just go yeah. up into the mountain and then, you know, wade through the river and I don't, I don't care to fish, mm-hmm. but just, just to be in that space. Mm-hmm. And, and I love, I love 
rivers. Mm. And one of my favorite things to do is to, when there are sections of the river that's shallow enough that you can actually wade in the water. Mm. That's really cool. Is your favorite? Being yeah. in the river? Being walking <laughs> in the water and just it's uh, it's a very grounding experience for me. Oh, fun! Yeah. I'm very attracted to water too. Yeah. Uh, mostly the ocean though. Yeah, I can. I figure if I was around rivers enough, I would stare all day at them, so I wouldn't get anything done. <laughs> Mesmerizing. Um, yeah, they are. Yeah. Amazing. Yeah. So, do you have any creative outlets? Like, what do you Writing. do when you feel stuck? Writing. Yeah, writing is creative. Mm -hmm. My work is creative. I mean, mm -hmm. I have, I think about this on occasion. I mean, you know, executive coaching, so working mm -hmm. with a CEO of a company, yeah. and then working with one in the morning and another one in the afternoon, different characters, different marketplaces, different mm -hmm. needs, different challenges. It's a creative process for me. Right. I approach it as a creative process because I'm not approaching it as a, um, as kind of a mechanized six-step thing that we must accomplish. It's really about, you know, what's true that needs to be unfolded and mm -hmm. what's false that needs to be illuminated and what's the right path forward. You right. Know? And I don't have an answer to that. <laughs> so it keeps your mind creatively active. How do you switch between the gears when you're going from one client to another in this creative process? I, I think that... It's really just about being present to what is. I, I don't mean to be so sort of evasive in that answer, but it's not like I have a ritual. Yeah, you know, I have to dip my, yeah, <laughs> have to dip my left toe in the, oh, you know, you know, ghee in my right finger, and, you know, yeah. caramelized onions or whatever. Yeah, I mean, it's just um, it's a lot of being really present, and I think a lot of the creative, if you call it creative process for me, mm -hmm. comes down to this really. Um, applied sense of curiosity. Mm, I love that. Yeah, so I'm showing up, of course I have an agenda, but my agenda is their well-being, right? The agenda is the success of the experience. Mm. Um, and I have tons of processes. Yeah. I'm really interested in where the, the, the spontaneous, I, I talk about the, the, sort of the paradox of, how do I describe it? I describe it as the firmness of intention with the spontaneity of execution. You find the balance in the creative process. Yeah, the firmness of intention with spontaneity of execution, right? So this is what we want, this is what we're going after. That's the firm intention, that's the, 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 the kind of the, the yang piece. And then you have like the your end. parameters that you work within, or are there no parameters? In terms of like... Um, well, because, well, so one of your virtues in your book is focus. And mm -hmm. I was trying to meditate on this a lot as a creative person myself. I really just want to go with the flow, mm -hmm. but that I feel like really disperses my energy and my focus and attention to the place where I'm not creating anything at all. So I find that what works for me is to have an intention, have a direction, have a focus, but give myself parameters to play within because I think I would go crazy <laughs> if, I, if I was very rigid with my focus. <laughs> And, and, and a lot of it has to do with personality, right? Mm -hmm. So some people are very structured, and some people are more um, flowing or, or spontaneous, as it were. But you use the word flow, and it's a really, it's a really telling word. Now, so if we think of it, we're talking about rivers, right? Mm -hmm. So rivers flow. But the river can't flow without the banks. It can't flow without the creek. It can't flow without the crack in the earth that defines it. Mm -hmm. And so the notion that flow somehow is antithetical to structure is is not accurate right you know there's always this this dynamic you know, passing back and forth between form and force right force yeah. is flow and energy and form is structure and all form is temporary and all force for a while becomes that form you know mm -hmm. so i think right. from a creative perspective i mean you might even limit yourself in terms of is it going to be oil or is it going to be you know acrylics is it going to be paper or is it going to be ceramics, is it going to be computer, is it going to be guitar? I mean, there's an inherent restriction, as it were, right. within the creative, creative medium. Let's start with your story, because this is something that I haven't actually heard from you. It's something that I read about and was told from um, some of your clients that you work with. Mm -hmm. So maybe we can begin at the beginning and touch on, on the highlights. But you were born in Israel. Oh, right. born in Israel, yeah. And then your family moved to South Africa? Yep, I finished yeah. uh, three years of high school there. The last, okay. I graduated high school in South Africa. 
Okay, so when did you come to the U.S. and what prompted that? I came to the U.S. Um, to go to college mm -hmm. and uh, I came to the U.S. because I was not even remotely fitting into South Africa. Mm -hmm. My my mother essentially got us all to leave Israel to go to South Africa because she was concerned for our safety as boys going to the army. Um, and I, I was not prepared for life in South Africa in the 1980s. Um, and so I wanted to go back to Israel to go to the army. And my mom's like, wait, I just moved six people to avoid this. So you can't go there. So I'm sure I'm not staying here. <laughs> no. <laughs> no, it was kind of a definitive no. I guess at 17 or 18, I thought that was... She still had that power. Yeah. So I negotiated uh, the U.S. So I came here to go to college. Okay. Yeah. I came here as a, an escapee, not a refugee, but I was escaping. Sure. Okay. So in your college years, did you find that you adapted better here? And what made the difference for you? No, I did a horrible job here. I, did you? Oh, God. No, I, <laughs> I completely flailed. I, flailed. I, I was kicked out of college after my first year. Wow. Oh, so yeah. then what, so you were escaping South Africa and the U.S. was kind of your next best choice. Yeah. But you were, you still were uncertain about your new environment and how well you would do. Like yeah. what was your, your mindset at the time? Because it couldn't have just been just escaping, right? Well, well, no. I mean, talk about lack of intention, right? Yeah. I was, I was running away from I wasn't running towards anything, yeah. right? So all I had was like this great wind at my back with mm -hmm. no tail or rudder to give me yeah. direction, right? So I got here. My family wasn't here. My family mm -hmm. was in South Africa. That's 10,000 miles away. Right. No family or constrictions here. Talk about it, right? right? So it was just, it was all force with no form. Nowhere and going to nowhere. <laughs> nowhere going to nowhere with a lot of intensity. Right. Okay. So, <laughs> so what, I, yeah. what came next? So you, you struggled through college to, was, like, what did you do with that? Because I know that for me, I think I would struggle with not feeling supported, one. But then, two, when when you're in that position, a choice has to be made or is presented for you to possibly look at. Oh, yeah. What was your choice? Well, that choice point, if we mm -hmm. talk about sort of definitive choice points, mm -hmm. was getting kicked out of college because mm -hmm. I was here on a student visa. Okay. And so suddenly it was like, oh, I'm not eligible, I'm not eligible to stay if I don't pull it together. Okay. So, so that, you know, was incredibly stressful at 18 and 19, I guess 19 by then. Um, but it was also in a way very clarifying. It suddenly, I realized I wanted to be here. Mm. I didn't want to yeah. be in South Africa. I didn't want to be in Israel. I wanted to be in the States. And so that was a, that was a bucket of ice water on my sleepy consciousness. Right. You know? Yeah. Yeah. That was a good realization. Yeah. So you created chaos to come to clarification. Yeah, well, mm -hmm. sure. I've certainly stepped in with both feet. Yeah. <laughs> but, yeah. So, what came first for you? Because you spent some time in a spiritual commune. Yeah. As well as your year of science, uh, silence. So, yeah. what prompted those two things and what well, came first uh, for you? Yeah, my, when I realized that I was going to have to get my act together, I, mm -hmm. I, I was 19, I thought, wow, okay, so what's getting in my way? Because, mm -hmm. you know, ostensibly there's nothing in my way in the, in the world of the manifest experience. And so, I realized it was my it was my attitude and it was my lack of skill at, at kind of um, I don't know what's the word the sort of managing my own mind mm -hmm. right and I thought oh I, I should probably do something about that so I started looking around at all these different modalities now this is 1985 86 in Southern California there was a lot of modalities mm -hmm. for mental exploration and um, fortunately, I came down on the side of meditation. So got really interested in meditation and spirituality. And then uh, in short order, um, I found this rather elusive, exclusive, secretive spiritual community and uh, moved in. And, and it, that was a real turnaround because I was yeah. very intensely focused on discipline and structure and self-awareness and self-development and service to others. It was a hugely maturing experience. It was a second childhood mm -hmm. it was a, in terms of formative years. How did that come into your life? Like, was it something, so you, part of it was you sought it out, right? But how did you find this place? Or how did it find you? Yeah, so I, I, I was going around to all, I was, I, was, I was sampling a variety mm -hmm. of different um, spiritual mm -hmm. modalities. Um, 
and, uh, and one of them was a, an astrologer. So I went to an mm. astrologer who did an astrological reading on me, and she said, oh, you've got this chart of a person who's very much into spiritual. And I'm like, well, what the hell does that mean? You know? and so she said, well, let me introduce you to somebody. So she introduced me to a friend of hers who was involved in this community. And so then I went and talked to her, and she said, well, you know, you might be a good fit. There was no sort of instant fear in. And then, mm. and then I kind of abandoned it for about maybe six months. Mm and tried some other things and then went back to her and then I was introduced to some other folks in the community and went through a series of interviews and they finally agreed to to allow me in and I was initiated. Yeah. yeah. Did you feel like you belonged there? Uh, in many ways it felt very familiar, you know, it was really, yeah, I mean, in many ways, I felt like I had found a place, mm -hmm. and these were some pretty strange folks, and um, um, my kids occasionally meet some of my friends from way back then, and I'm like, who are these people? Um, but in a way, I did. You know, I was always, uh, my teacher used to joke that I was a spiritual entrepreneur. What he meant was I was always trying to make a better meditation, or somehow mm -hmm. fix the system, or accelerate it. Right. <laughs> you know, mm -hmm. it's like 1,500 years worth of wisdom, and I, at 20 years old, knew better ways of doing it, so they were laughing. Like, of course you do. At 20 years old, we yeah. know everything. Yeah. There were other people that were much more compliant. I don't think compliance was one oh, of my I things. See. Yeah. Mm -hmm. I was trying to rejig it and be creative uh -huh. with it and come up with new, better ways. And I got a lot of attention from the senior mm -hmm. folks in the organization, the teacher and the, other, the assistant mm -hmm. teachers. They got really turned on to what I was doing. Right. But the bulk of the population was very um, disturbed by it. Oh, that makes me curious. So. You mentioned that um, when your family moved, you have six people who lived with you. So, do you have any siblings? Yeah, I have three yeah. brothers. Yeah, three brothers. so there's six of us total oh, okay. family. Yeah, yeah, four boys. Where do you fall in the birth I'm, order? I'm, I'm, I was born first. Oh wow! Okay, yeah. what was your role? Or oh, I find that surprising because usually the the guinea pig, the first child, so that I've seen is usually like compliant and they conform. No, that's never been my shtick. Compliance and performance is not the best. <laughs> so, what was your role in this community? Well, I mean, the primary role was student, right? Mm -hmm. Learn to to understand, to know and understand the truth for myself, to understand mm -hmm. who I am and how the world is and how the dynamic of relationships work between people and with the universe. And then my role became, you know, a leadership role within guiding and facilitating and you know being as passionately a student as I was then a, a young teacher. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So th was that your first real experience with leading people within your tribe? Yeah. 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 How did that come about? Like, was it something that naturally uh, followed for you or was it something that you were seeking out? To, to lead? Mm -hmm. um, hmm. I'm not sure whether, it, I guess it's kind of a blend. Wasn't natural as much. It's an interesting question. It was certainly. I think my urge was to improve and influence. Okay. You know, I wanted to make things better, and I wanted to influence people because that's what it would take to make things better. Mm. And so, and so that, and 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 I was a, I was kind of intense in pursuing my own practices and studies, and so I quickly gained great insight into the sort of content and process of our, of our tradition right. and then continue to have this urge to improve and influence. And so I guess it translated into people start paying attention, right? Like I said, the senior, the teacher and the other teachers in particular would be like, oh, we should probably give them more responsibility and test them a little more. Mm -hmm. And so it became a bit of a self-perpetuating cycle. Right. And well, I ask that because I have been thinking a lot about, you know, where leadership comes from, if it's this innate thing that you're born with because you know sometimes when you meet people and it's almost as if they have gravity right and you have no idea really what they're saying is or what their message is you're just like drawn to them and then the leadership that is cultivated and the leadership that comes with with wisdom and understanding how you know being a good leader is also empowering other leaders and you know, the leadership in your community was seeing, you know, the values and traits in you that you're bringing out. And they're, you know, they gave you the opportunity to kind of play with that and empower you into that position. So I think um, 
I was just trying to figure out, you know, what what part of leadership do we have control over and what part of leadership do we not? I think that the gravity, I like that comment, some people have gravity. Mm-hmm. They're magnetic, they're charismatic. It doesn't inherently make them a leader, though, right? Because you right. could be a great salesperson. Mm-hmm. You could be a wonderful artist. You could be a great you know, seducer of men or women. Mm-hmm. Um, I think leadership has to do with taking that gravity and s- if that gravity is there, right? So let's say somebody has gravity, magnetism, right? Um, to what end? Because some could just make it all about, so I, I think of people sometimes in three kind of celestial bodies, right? There's mm-hmm. the sun, the moon, and the black hole. Okay. Right? And so the black hole absorbs all the energy into itself, releases none, and just continues to amount, to amass more, more energy and power, but it doesn't release it. Mm-hmm. The moon has the capacity to reflect light, and so it sheds some light, not, not as luminous as the sun, but it's not, you know, on a full moon you can walk down the beach, right? Mm-hmm. You can see. And then the sun has what appears to be kind of a, this, this great source of energy that not only is it sort of indiscriminate in giving to all, but it is very nourishing. Mm-hmm. And so each one of those objects has gravity. Right. But the black hole's gravity sucks you in and doesn't let you go and absorbs it onto itself. Mm-hmm. The moon's gravity is much weaker. It affects the tides. And the sun's gravity holds the solar planet, the solar system together. Mm-hmm. And so I think... You know, there are leaders, and we're in an election period right now, there are leaders who are unfreaking believable black holes, mm-hmm. suck it into themselves, all mm-hmm. for their own aggrandizement. Mm-hmm. And then you have the moon and the sun. So I think that leadership at some level is something that somebody has to want to exert because it comes ultimately with responsibility and accountability and challenge. Right. I, I, I had a conversation the other day with a friend of mine who just retired after 36 years as a firefighter. So he was a captain. I saw him at the gym. He looks great. <laughs> He's got a beard. He looks super chill. Um, and and uh, we were talking about the burdens of leadership. He says the biggest burden of leadership is responsibility. Mm-hmm. And I think when people don't get that, then they are very susceptible to being the black hole. That doesn't advance the team. Doesn't advance the community, the tribe, the planet. So I'm obviously you can tell I'm not a supporter of that. I think that if somebody is fortunate enough to have that gravity, then to what end? And if somebody doesn't, it doesn't withhold them from being able to affect great change right. and bring great value. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think I read in your book, um, your first book, right, Leadership as a Hero's Journey, um, when you're talking about focus and pose, asking the question, what am I creating? And somewhere in there you said, you know, creating without purpose is really just becoming your habits. And meditating a little bit on that more, I was asking myself, like, okay, for me personally as a creator, like I, I do many things and I know what I'm creating, but I don't always know why. So where does the why come in and what is its role in leadership and creating momentum and, and moving people forward? So, <laughs> so I think, you know, the, the why from a creative perspective, can be a, why, a different source of energy than the why from a leadership perspective. Because sometimes if you're creating, especially if it's in kind of the fine art realm, right, if it's music or painting or poetry, the, the why is sometimes just a, an unavoidable compulsion that just pushes from within and wants you to create. Because I think that's the nature of human experience at the fundamental level. I think every human being is a, is a creative because we are here as almost conduits of infinite energy that wants to find its expression and the uniqueness of our particular pattern that is that is what makes us who we are. So there's that there's you can answer why create? Because you must. You know, that's one level. I think from a leadership perspective, in particular in organiz- in in um in situations where the person is not forced to follow you, right? They're volunteering, like in a workplace environment, or even a, a community, um, a religious organization. The why people are very tuned into having some sense of purpose, and so being able to identify the purpose is powerful individually because it's one of the ways we can overcome boredom, frustration, disheartenment, disappointment, and collectively because it lets people plug in above and beyond their ego impulses. 
right? You get a bunch of people together, and now we all have our own ideas. How the heck do we let go of our personal agendas? And one way we do that is by plugging into this bigger sense of purpose. And so, to your question, do people have to resonate with it? Oh, yeah. Yeah. In my head, that's um, cultivation of community. And so, even with leadership, you can't really lead unless you're in relation to somebody else. So I think I was just wondering, you know, the role of, of purpose and, and how, how strongly that affects cultivating leadership. I think it affects it incredibly powerfully. That, look, folks are motivated by different things, mm-hmm. right? Sense of belonging is fundamental. It's, it's so strong that, that you, I don't know if you've seen some of the research, and I don't know how the heck they got approval to do this research, but babies that weren't being held. Oh, is that, and, yeah. Have you seen that one? So like infants, newborns that weren't getting tended to and sense of connection were actually becoming sickly and, mm-hmm. and, 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 yeah. and deathly. Even. And the babies in the orphanage. Yeah. yeah. And, mm-hmm. and so the human experience is one of bonding. Leadership, I agree with you, is what I call a relational competency. And, and what you see is in the absence of purpose, the bonds of commitment are financial, right? Mm-hmm. So I may not believe in what you're doing for my boss, but if you pay me enough, and there's enough, because that's, that's you know, you, pay, you have to pay me enough to overcome not only, to pay for the delta of the fact that I'm not into it, mm-hmm. but then if you take the money out of the equation, then there's no more followership because right. leadership is only as good as followership is. Right. There's no leadership without followership. Mm-hmm. And that's a dynamic exchange, right? Yeah. And money is one way that people use to close that delta, to close that gap, but it's very unsustainable. You said something that really resonated with me. It was about, well, let me go around to the question. So, because you spent a year in silence and you built a cabin around the age of, was it your 30s? 30, yeah. Yeah, and for me, so I think, one, it wouldn't be an easy thing for me to go into your silence and solitude, but a part of the hero's journey is is actually having that journey, like wandering off on your own, learning about yourself, facing your fears, but then bringing that back into the world, back into the community. So did you have any difficult reintegrating what you learned from your year of silence? Um, well, so the year of silence came after mm-hmm. 11 years of living in the community, right? Mm-hmm. So, so, and in those 11 years, I graduated college, I went to work, you know, so, so, the, so it was very, um, a long training leading up to it as it were. And then, um, and the reason, the revelation essentially, that propelled me out of the cabin, because I wasn't necessarily wanting to leave. What happened around the years, the years period was this revelation, this profoundly unexpected revelation. Because I'd gone to that cabin, I'd quit my job, I'd shaved my head, I'd liquidated my money in a good way. I took sort of oaths of, of obedience and silence, and I was like, oh, I'm, this, this is it, I'm going, you know, for the foreseeable future, I am in hermit mode, and I will, I will do whatever I need to do to learn what I need to learn, but I was then going to return to this spiritual community, and fully immerse myself as a teacher in the order in this very sort of select group of folks. That's not how it turned out. <laughs> <laughs> I'm like, did I go to plan? <laughs> as you're sitting in my conference room, it's clearly not the way it turned out, right? Yeah. But um, there was this revela- literally a revelation that, that, that sitting cross-legged on the mountaintop was not the path for me. And that um, connection, communication, and collaboration were the things that I needed to learn master and that wife and children and service to community would be my path mm-hmm. it blew my mind wow. it was completely not what I was planning to talk about right. an intention that I had set that was upended by this revelation and so to your question about integration I'm still struggling with integration <laughs> <laughs> you know and, and and professionally I've set myself up as a, basically a professional outsider yeah I like that I feel I feel the same way in a lot of ways so what was the, the mindset going in? Because it, you did have a plan, right, mm-hmm. for this. Did you expect it to be easier than it was? 
Oh my God, yes. Yes? Oh, I had no idea. What were some of the challenges you, that you faced and what did you do to overcome them? Because you're pretty, you're by yourself, right? Are you oh, your yeah. only support in this situation? Well, there, there were, uh, it was still part of the community, right? Okay. So there were people at a distance mm -hmm. who would bring food and, okay. yeah. Mm -hmm. But it's not like could you converse with them when you had I, I could, but I didn't. No, I didn't. It okay. was very isolated. Yeah, okay. I was very much alone. And there were no TV, no radio, mm -hmm. you know, no telephone. Obviously, it was just uh, it was just a very uh, insulated, isolated experience. Yeah. yeah. Well, what happens when you desensitize yourself? Well, you know, the thing that I didn't expect that was mm -hmm. profoundly uh, surprising and almost insurmountable was the uh, uh, the unmitigated, unfiltered experience of coming face to face with my personal responsibility for my life. Did not see that coming. <laughs> I thought I was responsible for my life at that point. But to recognize that I can't blame my mom, I can't blame my dad, my girlfriends, my friends, my teachers, my enemies, the president, the universe, there was nobody to blame. What I had was what I had, and I had it because I was the participant in the creation process. That was really intense. Like I mean, that. we talk about this at an intellectual level, right. but to kind of park there in the middle of the forest and have these illusions of blame and codependency just slough off like dead mm -hmm. skin under the constant brushing of meditation and fresh air yeah. <laughs> it was very surprising. What did you do with that realization? Was that an empowering moment for you? Was it a fearful moment? Because I imagine that would be kind of fearful for me. Like, oh terrifying. my gosh, it's all, it's all up to me. Oh, it was freaking terrifying. Yeah. It was terrifying. <laughs> it was really, it was, it was, it was, it was terrifying to recognize that I, this is my life. And I get to be in my life what I want to be in my life. Mm -hmm. It's empowering much later. Um, but it was terrifying. And it came right around the same time as my own. The other thing that was surprising kind of goes along with that. If I can divert that or sort of add that dimension was the doubts, fears, sense of inadequacy, mm -hmm. self-loathing, self-criticism inner critic, all that, also had no filters after a while. Right. And that came rushing in. And so the sense of responsibility was shocking, like, oh my God, this is my life. And then that was followed by this, this unfiltered sense of self-loathing that kind of built into this profound, dark, mucky swamp of self-denial. And that, and I talk about this in the TEDx talk that I gave, you know, it, well, there was a period it took everything I could to not kill myself, wow. to not commit suicide, because I was so incredibly immersed in how pathetic uh, and unaccepting I was of myself. Right. It was really intense, did not I expect bet. that. Oh, yeah. 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 Because, well, so for... And one, like you switched your attention from being reflective or from being out to being introspective and focusing your attention on you. So what came next? Like, what did you do with that? Obviously, there's a choice that was made where you're still here. And usually there's a realization behind that choice. So is there one for you? Um, yeah, it's a kind of a combination of, of a couple of things. One is that I had spent 11 years really trained in meditation. Right? Not just mm -hmm. mindfulness. Mindfulness is a, is a particular practice. Meditation is a lifestyle. Mm -hmm. And so mindfulness is, is a way of paying attention. It is not a meditation practice in and of itself. Meditation is far richer than that. Mm -hmm. And so I was trained in this kind of spiritual practice of, of, of meditation. And so I could actually have the training that allowed me to sit in, you know, just a remarkably dark sense of self-loathing to the mm -hmm. point where my journal entries, I actually write, I'm a worm. And then I have no, worms have more value than me because they actually yeah. turn the earth. The only gift, I just take energy and I give nothing. I, I was wow. in this, and eventually came down to the greatest gift I can give the world is to just eliminate the world of my moochiness. Mm -hmm. You know, 
And sitting with that was pretty intense with those dark, destructive thoughts. Mm -hmm. But I was trained to breathe, Mm -hmm. breathe, sit, breathe, breathe, sit. And and my teachers had always told me that all these instructors are ephemeral and not real and they pass. They were right. Mm -hmm. I sat and breathed for days and weeks and months and it lifted and it lifted. Yeah. So what happened when you actually got to meet yourself then? Oh, it's a very um, relaxed experience. So, I'm 49. So that was 18 years ago, 17 years ago. Um, one of the things that's different over the past 17 years, it was distinctly different from the first 30. That inner critic went away and never came back. Wow, I love that. Uh, so what what does that allow you to do in your work now and what you create when you're able to let go of the, critic, the inner criticism and maybe even meet yourself with compassion? Oh, that that's what you're Grace yeah. and compassion. Okay. Kindness and compassion. Yeah. yeah. What doors open for you when you're able to do that? Um, it's the doors of living a life that's just less exhausting and just kinder you know it doesn't have to be i don't have to be the king of the world it's interesting in a way it took a lot of my ambition away i don't think people would accuse me of not being ambitious but (laughs) but i i was surprised at how much of my ambition was driven by a need to prove and to shut those voices down you know i think this aspiration which is a desire to sort of unfold the authenticness the authenticity of whatever your expression is and then there's ambition and I think aspiration and ambition are not the same. And I think a lot of my ambition went away mm-hmm. because I suddenly wasn't compelled to prove that I'm worthy or to disprove that I'm unworthy. Right. If that makes any sense. Maybe you made your ambition more sustainable. Oh, I'm still. You're yeah. by something that's more, um, more substantial mm-hmm. as opposed to something that you're forcing. I think my ambition is much more. F- fueled by the creative impulse. I mean, what turns me on is the capacity to take, you know, thoughts, energy, ideas, and principles, and to to process them through the dynamic experience that is me at this time, and to express them in some way that's that's visible and and useful. And so to me, that's creative. That's a very creative process. And that excites me. So, because I think I come from a perspective of Duality. I was kind of born into this mindset of, you know, there's analytical and then there's creative and in business everything is mostly analytical. Like I have that story playing. So you work with CEOs of like Fortune 1000 companies, like really big power players in business. How do they approach your creativity? Uh, I think the, 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 that, that there's, a, there's a false narrative about business being all analytical. Mm-hmm. And so um, it's true that the analytical component helps the mechanisms of business go forward. But if you don't have a creative impulse, there's no business to be had in the first place. So there's some creativity. And we talk about innovation. Innovation is applied creativity, right? The distinction is creativity is an idea. Innovation is some kind of a you know, commercially valued application of creativity. And in the realm of an organization, there are two people in the executive team that are the most creative folks in the most organizations, the chief marketing officer and the chief executive officer. Mm -hmm. Because the role of the chief executive officer is to weave together all these components in order to create something significant and valuable. And so to me, working with CEOs is, is very energizing because they get that if they stop being creative, now creative doesn't look like an oil painting, or it doesn't look like, you know, a a new poem, but it looks like manifesting something that wasn't there before Mm -hmm. through this medium called people and money onto this platform called the marketplace. You know, so, so as far as I'm concerned, successful CEOs are remarkably creative people who are not in the fine art realm, Mm -hmm. but it's very creative. Of course, yeah. So I love how you put that because... Um, it, I guess you're helping them to see where their 
time and energy is most valuable, like in the role of the creator. It's their job to be creative and to drive that creativity as opposed to managing, right? Because you have managers to manage. That's not, not your job. That role is already filled. So how do you get CEOs into that creative space when they might have lost it? Questions. Mm -hmm. yeah. A lot of questions. Mm -hmm. I mean, to me, curiosity is this, mm -hmm. is this totally underutilized, inherent human aspect. I mean, you look at little kids, they're imminently curious mm -hmm. about everything. That's why they're almost trying to kill themselves at every turn, <laughs> right? Because they don't have a sense of mm -hmm. the boundary of where curiosity and sustainability mm -hmm. come together. I think with the with executives, a lot of times they do fall into the very trap you described of being analytical. If you're analytical for too long, you lose the capacity to add value at the highest executive level. Which, to your point, is not through just you know directing resources, which is management, but about creating possibility. And if we're talking about possibility, we're talking about creativity. And one of the ways to go there is with a lot of curiosity and courage. Mm -hmm. They have to be willing to challenge their own notions of themselves, the expectations people have of them, habits and patterns in the organization, their own insecurity. Um, so how how do you ignite somebody's courage? Because I see so you're working with highly intelligent, creative people, and I think that a lot of them might be if anything, subtly aware of their limitations or what they're afraid of. Um, so how do you pull them out of that? Do you take their hand and drag them through their gear? Or? <laughs> no, because it doesn't work with uh, actually anyone. Um, <laughs> taking someone's hand and dragging them through fear mm -hmm. makes them dependent, not courageous. Right. You know, and so there's, there, is a, there is a school of teaching that's very fond of that, sort of forcing you into your thing. And, and it does have some benefit. I'm, my experience, having gone through many of those experiences, mm -hmm. is that it's not really, what to use your words, or sustainable, nor transferable. It, it's too, that's kind of the macho version of courage. That's mm -hmm. not really what I'm interested in. I'm interested in the courage that's really about the willingness to engage the unengageable, to explore the unexplorable, you know, to accept the unacceptable. That's what the courage is. Yeah. It's not about jumping to the fire out of an airplane or wrestling with bulls. And so how, how I do it is by a, first of all, tying it into what you first started talking about, which is purpose. What's their purpose? What's their why? What, what's their bigger picture? And then what gets in the way? And then inevitably, when we talk about what gets in the way, there's resources, there's time, there's responsibility, familiar responsibility, corporate responsibility. And then we get down to they're in their own way. Yeah. Okay. So is that the common hurdle? Is they're only limited by themselves? They're not only limited by okay. themselves because there are legitimate limitations and constrictions in the world around us, but they are... The, the fact that they're limited by themselves is often not visible to them. Mm -hmm. Because to use your language from earlier, they're more reflective than introspective. So they look around to see what's not working. Mm -hmm. It's not immediately obvious to them to look within to see what's not working. I see. So they're almost in this mindset where they're just solely taking in their environment as opposed to creating their environment. Well, especially if you're talking about senior executives and CEOs, they have gone to where they got because they have an uncommon capacity to influence people. Mm -hmm. And so they're very accustomed to looking out and influencing and shaping and moving and, and, and mm -hmm. motivating. And they lose track of who's the motivator, who's the orchestrator inside. Oh, that's going to be fun. You, so you influence influencers. I influence yeah, influencers. That is one of my, so that's one of my fun. lines. Yeah, that's one of my passions. Yeah. So do you, what are some of your favorite activities to kind of... Um, you mentioned that you like to ask questions and you're naturally curious. Are there any like really unique tactics that you use to kind of pull somebody outside of maybe a fear space or a limitation? There's, I'm trying to think off the top of my head if there's any, I mean, within the context of a coaching experience, it's, mm -hmm. it's, it's sort of what they need in the moment. There's one of my, um, this is a kind of a cheap trick, but uh, it seems to work more than it doesn't, way more than it doesn't. So I'll ask the question, they'll say, I don't know, right? So why do you think you're stuck in this situation? 
mom, you've tried this now four times and it's not working. Why do you think you're stuck? Well, you know, this department, that department won't do it. I go, well, you have the power to affect them, then how can you still stop? So we get around to the point where they, they don't know the answer, right? Mm-hmm. And then, they'll, then they'll say, well, why do you think you're stuck in this situation? And Bob say, I don't know. It's a fair answer, right? And I'll say, so I get that you don't know. And if we could travel to a parallel universe, because you know science has not proven there are multiple universes happening concurrently. And in this universe parallel, this in this parallel universe, Bob does know the answer. What would you say then? Mm-hmm. And they proceed to tell me the answer. So <laughs> fun, yeah. Because right? you're pulling that possibility towards you. Right. right? Yeah. So right. you also mentioned that as you know, um, in focus in your book, one of the virtues, how you set your in, attention on where you want to go as opposed to where you're at. So that's great. So what what are their reactions when they when they suddenly find that they have this answer? You know, what I've learned to do over time is to kind of, you know, acknowledge them and, mm-hmm. and recognize that they gave the answer and just accept it as, as yeah. part of the course and move on. Not make a big deal out of it or, or kind of, you know, overemphasize, just go, hey, okay, mm-hmm. so now what do we do with that information? You know, just immediately absorb it, make it obvious that they just got it. And just use that data point and move on, right? And with courage, and with fear, um, I, I, I was—I mean, I'll give you, can I give you a short example? I was in a conversation the other day, CEO of a, of a large company up in Portland, and he says, I, "Well, I don't know if this is fear-based." He says to me, "But I get super pissed when the guy comes in for the third time and he doesn't understand what I think he should understand." Mm-hmm. I go, and he goes, I don't, "I don't think that's fear." I was just like, "I mean, really, am I am I employing fools that don't get it?" So I said, no, no, I, I, I get it. You're angry. I, what are you feeling at that time? He goes, well, I'm mean, impatient, frustrated, sure. No, I said, that's what you're thinking. The first thing that I do when I help people get into their fear, understand their fear, because I want them to be able to name it. Because mm-hmm. if you can name it, you can tame it. Right? Mm-hmm. And so we have to name it. But you can't name it cognitively, because it's, you're too wrapped into the fear. Your fear and you are, in fact, co-identified. Right? So how do we create space? How do we create a situation where they can see in quick succession, without going for a year in the mountains, that they're in fear mode? And so I say, great, tell me what your actual physical experience is. So I go, I'm very, very keen on the embodied experience of our state of being. So what are you feeling? Well, frustrated. No, that's a psychological interpretation. What are you sensing? So we get into the tightness in the chest, the churning in the gut. He actually leaned forward and made fists. I said, okay, so there's tension in your shoulders, there's tension in your hands. So we spent a few moments just getting into the physicality of it. I go, now that you're in your body, what are those sensations all about? He goes, oh, that's, oh my God, that's fear. I said, great. If you could name this, what would you call it? Well, I don't want this to go behind because we're going to go behind it. Da, 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 da. Fear of failure. Right? And now that we have a name for it, we have sensations for it, these are smart folks, right? We start making connections and where do you go from there? But I'm really big on the embodied experience. The mind is tricky. Yeah. And fear is very seductive too. Like fear. fear will hide and it will convince, you, convince people that it's not fear or that it's something else. Um, and so there's fear of failure and I think that that's a very common fear. Do you deal with people with fear of success and is that kind of the same thing? Do you approach I, I, it the same I, way? Yeah, I mean fear of success to me is just an unrefined exa- examination of fear of failure. Mm. Because when I've dug around in fear of success for the last 20 years with folks, mm. it comes down to if I succeed then what? Usually there's some other you know, consequences right. that are the real fear, right? If I succeed, then I won't be able to maintain it, which is really or I have failure, responsibility right? that I'm not ready to take on. That I'm not yeah. ready to take on, and I'll be overwhelmed, or my friends won't like me, which is really fear of rejection, mm-hmm. or they're going to find out that I'm not that competent, which is fear of humiliation. Mm-hmm. So the fear of success to me is is, is just, it, it, it's a legitimate label, but it's not a sufficiently explored actual mm-hmm. driver. So, I think it's safe to say that approaching fear with courage is your recommended approach, right? But what about people who are able to compartmentalize fear, who are able to bypass it? How do you mean? Um, like when they notice a fear and they don't 
I don't think you have to feel it or have to experience fear. You just put yourself out there and do it. Is that, and it sounds to me like that's a component of grit, another one of your virtues. But do you have to face your fear in order to overcome it or to accomplish what you need to accomplish? Or maybe if you're able to bypass it so easily that it's not really a true fear or what you're really fearful of. I, I think that's a great way to go about it. One, there's a couple of things in there. One, overcoming it is not, it's not really, I don't know exactly how to answer it, overcoming mm-hmm. fear. Mm-hmm. I think it's about repositioning the relationship with fear. So fear goes from dominator to advisor. Mm-hmm. To me, that's the, that's the point of courage. It's not the elimination of fear. It's the fact that fear will be present in an advisory role, not in a directive role. Does that make any sense? Mm-hmm. And so the fear will be there and say, hey, watch out. Because that's, you know, we are the descendant of fearful people. <laughs> the, the folks in the gene pool thousands of years ago that didn't listen to their fear died and do not have, do not have descendants. We are children and grandchildren, great-grandchildren, people who have fear. That's how they survive. So putting it in context, it's advisory. But it shouldn't be directive. It shouldn't be controlling. And I think if, if, if the, you know, everybody has fear. And some people will you know, step up in front of a crowd of 10,000 and just bathe in it and just enjoy it. Some people will step up in front of five people and freak out about it. Mm-hmm. The same people who bathe in the, in the wonderful you know, public speaking will freak out mm-hmm. in the, when they are one-on-one with somebody and they have to be vulnerable and really display their own you know, blemishes. Right. And so everybody has fear. And it sounds like it's necessary. Fear is necessary. But what is also necessary is changing your relationship to that fear. And that's what I call courage. I mean, my definition of courage is walking toward what you'd rather run away from, mm-hmm. right? And if you're bypassing it, you see, the issue with fear is that it's fundamentally protective. Do you have to overcome fear? Overcome is not the issue. Do you have to deal with fear? I think if you want to have a life that flows, if you want to create, if you want to create more than what you created last year, five years ago, ten years ago, because any of that sort of unfolding expression of self or creativity is constantly at the edge of the zone of comfort, right? We're constantly, I mean, the new creative, how many, how many, um, how many genres did Picasso paint in, right? Because he was done with the Cubist and now he went to the, you know, whatever the heck the other one was, and all the weird like impression. Impression. Uh, uh, not Yeah, he had the Cubist, I mean, he had like four or five distinct right. periods, right? Mm-hmm. Or, or genres or whatever you call them. And at every point, he had to come to the edge of the familiar. Mm-hmm. And at that edge of the familiar, fear kicks in because it's threatening. And then being graceful with that is how we continue to create. Right. How did you uh, step into the role of a coach? Like, were there any fears that you had to overcome with that? Of course. <laughs> <laughs> sure. Um, I recognized when I when I came back to San Diego and wanted to you know, start a family and a job and that I didn't really want to take a job in a company. I wanted to I wanted to be engaged in a way that works with people to to continue to teach and influence and uh, and uh, facilitate you know significant evolutionary growth. And I particularly love working with business people, mm-hmm. with executives in, in 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 the world of manifestation and responsibility. And so the spiritual drive, the creative drive, and the audience for me was like, yeah. So I, so I do one-on-one executive coaching. I do one to few. I, I work a lot with facilitating executive teams. And then, of course, the writing and the speaking and, and large-scale pieces as well. But, you know, I, I thrive on the principles of, 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 of teaching and sharing. And so doing that within the context of a management or a leadership role felt way too... Um, way too um, uh, finite for me. Yeah, I can see that. So we're coming up on an hour, oh and I want to respect your time. I could ask you a million questions, but I think what I'm really curious to know is because you're the influencer of influencers, who is your major influence at any age, too? At what? At any age, because I'm sure you had several, right? Yeah. You Look, I mean, the first obvious answer is my parents. Mm-hmm. There were huge influences on me. For good and bad, <laughs> but more good than bad. Yeah. 
uh, but they influence me in my thinking, in my relationships, uh, in my view of the world. So there's a huge influence on me. Um, um, and then I think beyond that were my spiritual teachers that were the great influences on me, and some of the some of the uh, authors that 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 really shaped my thinking. Um, Robert Heinlein from the science fiction world was a big influence on me. Uh, Gorgiev, who was a spiritual writer in the late 20th century. Alistair Crowley, which was a big uh, kind of, uh, writer about magic and mysticism, was a big influence on me. Um, and um, Thich Nhat Hanh was a big influence. And I think more recently, in the past 15 years or so, it's been Ezra Beda and Elizabeth Hamilton, the teachers of the San Diego Zen Center. It continue to influence me. So, yeah. Very fun. Yeah. Well, thank you for your time. Um, I want to make sure that I get links from you uh, to your new book. So, is your new book uh, like a revision of your first book? It's a, yeah, it's an is update or revision. Is it like distilled down? Or? It, well, it's not much distilled, it's still oh, pretty yeah. long. Yeah. yeah. It's, it, but it's published by a new publisher, so mm -hmm. I self published Leadership is a Hero's Journey. Okay. And then it got picked up by Sounds True Publishing. Okay. Yeah, yeah. And so, mm -hmm. um, so it's good to be in the in the company of Jack Winfield and Nick mm -hmm. Tolle and right. those folks. Um, and um, it's called the Four Virtues of a Leader. And mm -hmm. fourvirtuesofaleader.com mm -hmm. is the website where you can go and get some videos and buy the book and get some add-on materials. Mm -hmm. um, I'm, I'm excited about where it's at. Yeah. yeah. And I think I might know the answer to this, but do you have a favorite virtue? <laughs> that just that you have a really great relationship with and that teaches you a lot. Probably the one that I'm most of So there are the four virtues, right? Focus, mm -hmm. courage, grit, and faith. Mm -hmm. uh, courage is probably the greatest teacher for me. Yeah. In terms of the virtues. And is faith kind of the one that is underestimated or undermined a little bit? Well, and it, 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 yeah, so faith for me, each mm -hmm. one answers a question, right? And faith mm -hmm. answers a question, what am I letting go? And the, in, in my book, the faith is really about the leap of faith, mm -hmm. not necessarily faith in God. Mm -hmm. But the leap of faith, the willingness to mm. surrender and let go, yeah. it is entirely underutilized in our culture because it's perceived as weak, uh, unmanly, um, you know, uh, unpersevering. But I think it's the, it's the, it's. The, I have two books in the pipe. One is on courage, mm -hmm. and the next one is on faith. So oh, I'm going to develop them further. Yeah. Yeah, I love faith, and I think that your your virtues. Um, like paint a beautiful picture of the journey. Oh, thank like you. It, it really does because you bring out everything, especially I think emotionally, like you create this emotional experience through um, enacting these virtues. Oh, thank you. Yeah. yeah I saw uh, there was a, a review, Publishers Weekly reviewed my book, and one of the lines mm -hmm. at the end was this was a meditation on the soul of the leader. Mm. Yeah, I love totally. that they got that. Yeah, you know, it truly is. Yeah, and yeah. it's it's it really I did not write this book for people mm -hmm. who just want to who move my cheese, you know, the mm -hmm. kind of twenty minute read that's a parable. Mm -hmm. I wrote this book for people who want to excel in their leadership and dive deep in what it means to be a human being. And go into the layers. Yeah. Thank you, Eric, for sharing some of your valuable insights and time with us. You are so appreciated. I know that we didn't get to talk too much about Eric's book, The Four Virtues of a Leader, but I've read it and highly recommend it, especially for anyone in management and upper management roles, or really anyone who wants a more clear perspective on the soul journey of a leader. It explores the four virtues of successful, passionate, and creative leaders and helps guide one to navigate through uncertainty and manage anxiety in order to improve the lives and livelihoods of those around them. It's a super insightful read, and Eric is also a great storyteller. So if you're interested in learning more, you can find the link posted in the show notes on theprismaticlife.com. Okay, so... I have to admit that I was feeling really nervous about this entire interview process with Eric. He's someone I admire and aspire to, and in editing this podcast and listening back on his words, 
One key insight that showed up really strongly for me was the introspective question about what am I trying to prove and how can I release my inner critic? I think as an entrepreneur or for anyone who embraces creativity in their work, we're often found in situations where we are stepping outside of our tribes and constantly leaving the familiar. And this can be a really difficult space to occupy. We are facing stories about how we think things are supposed to look. We are learning about what it means to be a success or a failure. And we worry about maybe not so much our capacity to lead, but rather our capacity to generate followership, where we essentially have to ask, does our work matter and does anybody care? This dynamic between the inner critic and validation valuations shine a light on what seems to be an inherent need for approval, or rather to collectively feel like we're part of something. And in the midst of how this dynamic plays out in our lives, well, it also tends up to bring an awareness for our capacity to fail. I've been playing with some ideas around this capacity to fail for a few weeks now after listening to an episode on another one of my favorite podcasts called Reboot, where they share a quote from Kostika Braniton in their 2013 New York Times article, which I'll also link to in the show notes. It read that our capacity to fail is essential to what we are. The gap between what we are and what we can be is also the space in which utopias, or rather our entrepreneurial endeavors, are conceived. Ultimately, our capacity to fail is what makes us what we are. Our being as essentially failing creatures lies at the root of any aspiration, for in a sense, the capacity to fail is much more important than any individual human achievements. It is that which makes them possible. We are designed to fail. Now, even though I found this article to be profound, I'm still not 100% sure I totally agree with the idea that we are designed to fail, but rather think that our capacity to fail is just a part of the equation of our conscious creative ability, where our ultimate design is really to overcome challenges and create, to face the fear, to encourage our courage and to step towards our purpose and express our unique gifts. It's our capacity to put more of a focus on the soul's need for expansion through the design of our humanness. Okay, those are just my two cents, and I just briefly want to go back and mention Eric's approach to facing fear, since fear tends to be a big emotional hurdle that comes along with both our capacity to fail and our capacity to thrive. I think Eric gave really great perspective on how to create space between you and your fear, to give it a name and therefore take its elusive power away. He said that when you can name it, our feeling, emotion, and limitation, we can tame it. He also gave another great insight here where he said that our fears are meant to be advisory, but never in control, which I totally agree with. It is here in the moments when we feel close to surrendering to fear where I like to think of fear more as a friend. If you consider this, this little internal advisor with such a big voice essentially helps us to see how life in the present moment is actually very simple. Because fear shows us exactly where a major choice needs to be made. And with this choice, you either get to choose you or you get to choose the stories and illusions that fuel the fear in the first place. And eventually, you just rework the fear at some other point in time. For all my leaders out there, I ask you, from what capacity are you choosing from in your life? And also, I want to leave you with some closing thoughts. One is a quote from Carl Jung, and the other an insight again from the Reboot podcast. The quote goes, One does not become enlightened by imagining figures of light, but by making the darkness conscious. The latter procedure, however, is disagreeable and therefore not popular. And Reboot expands on this a little bit by saying, that which I do not wish to be is rarely considered an exciting prospect. Yet we implore all leaders to be courageous. It is only when we do the work to make the unconscious conscious that we are 
able to build true compassion for ourselves and others, freeing us to become the leaders we were born to become. Beautiful, right? Thank you guys so much for joining me for another episode. I really hope you enjoyed it and have gotten some nice gems you can take with you into your world and into all that you are creating. I'll be sure to leave some links from items mentioned in my chat with Eric in the show notes. And briefly, if you are interested in advertising, being a guest on the show, or becoming an affiliate of the podcast, you can find the contact form on the Prismatic Life website at theprismaticlife.com. If you find yourself enjoying this podcast and my episodes, please remember to leave a rating or better yet, a review. It's one of the fastest ways for us to grow our audience and reach more beautiful souls just like you. I'm really excited for all of the new episodes coming up, especially as I'm finding my niche here with the Prismatic Academy and I'll be trying out a few different styles of storytelling in the upcoming months. So watch out for them. Also, if you haven't already, I'd love to invite you to like us on Facebook under The Prismatic Life. And for those of you who love to chat about possibility and energy and potential, this is right up your alley. We do tons of fun stuff on this page like weekly tarot readings. And here's where I share information about all upcoming events and workshops both in San Diego and around the States. So if you're into it, I can't wait to see you on the page. And with that... I hope everyone has a great week and even more so, a very happy new year. All right, cheers, everyone.